This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Oh, oh, oh wow! Don't they know it's the end of the world? Do you want that more dramatic or... Like sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R One O Two Point Seven FM. Yes, welcome, 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 one and all, to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, Three Triple R's weekly analysis and discussion of the new systems growing on the ruins of the old. Bush is my name. Uh, tonight we are going to be talking with a return guest to the show, community organiser Theo Kitchener. Theo is founder of several groups, including Doing It Ourselves, which aims to both broaden understanding of the debt crisis and peak oil resources and encourage action for the sake of personal preparedness, happiness and ethical living. And there is also the Associated Livelihood, which is a network of mutually supporting cooperatives for working and playing together. As always, co-conspirator in the studio is Melbourne's most magnificent masticator of marvellous, mellow and mysterious weeds, Adam Grubb. <laughs> hey, Bushy. How are you, man? I'm good, man. I've been masticating. <laughs> yeah, it's quite... Fabulous. Yeah, quite recklessly. It'd be up and about, wouldn't it? Like Lots of good rain recently. The, it's, a, it's a fine season for weeds. There is a lot of mellow, which is pops up in most people's gardens. It's mm-hmm. one of the most uh, widely eaten foods <coughs> in the Middle East. There's plenty of... Angled onion, wild onion out there. Mm. There's a lot of nettle. That's pretty good. Yum. Yeah, and uh, wild cabbage. All those things are in season. Beautiful. Time to get amongst Free food. It. Uh, did you have a weed walk the other day? I did. Yeah. How'd that go? Oh. some converts. Yeah. The more you pass on the knowledge. Mean, we literally walked through. Uh, uh, it was a walk in the park, mate. Yeah. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> and joining us on rotation from the Scottish Highlands of Preston, lovely mm. Kate Dundas, how are you? Very well. Apart from my cough, again. And every time you speak, you need to cough. Mm. Well, yeah, it's not too joyful for the radio. Boo hiss. And uh, the Bicycle Whisperer weekly panellist, all-round gentleman, Jed McCartney is in the studio running the panel. How are you, Cobb? I'm well, thanks, Bushy. Excellent. Very good. Good to see you. What's caught our eye this week, kids? Um, who would like to start? We should discuss this off here before we go on each week, but we never seem to do it. <laughs> I'll uh, start. Go for it. Except I'm trying to open my article on the internet, and every time I touch it, it crashes. And I wonder if it's something to do with the content of it. Who knows? So ah. I can... Oh, crashed again. I'm just going to have to, do, to guess. Oh, no, I don't has it so my article <clears throat> is about how mobile phones basically control our minds and i really feel like i'm addicted to my phone and it so annoys me so first thing i look at when i wake up in the morning i reach down and stare at my stupid phone i look on facebook and I'm, i don't care i just get really annoyed i'm like i don't care what you're doing people like the people i like aren't on facebook 
There's lots of people that, you know, that I do like on Facebook also. Yeah. But I just waste so much time and then I go on Instagram and scroll, scroll, scroll. And I'm looking at all these, like, really annoying people just going, why am I looking at this? Why am I looking at this? And I do it every day. I do it every single day and it drives me nuts. So now I think this article maybe tells me why. It's because they're controlling our minds. So... The article's by Tristan Harris, and the uh, title of it is How Technology Hijacks People's Minds. And he was a magician and Google's design ethicist. So he used all of his magical, magic training um, and told Google how to be ethical when it came to not controlling people's mind. Hmm. Ah. Yes. And they went, thanks for that, here's a check. <laughs> yeah. So it's a really long article, so I will try and summarise it. So it, just t- it talks about what the designers of all the apps and the interfaces on mobile phones do to make you click and click and click. And he talks about how it's like having a, a poker machine or a, um, a poker in your pocket mm. at all times because like the little red notifications that you get on Facebook and Instagram, they're like rewards. And when you get a like, it's like a reward. It's like winning money and you just want to keep doing it and doing it over and over again. But he also talks about how when you want to make a choice, you go on your phone. Like if you're going to go out somewhere for dinner, you go on your phone and say, what's reviewed? Oh, I maybe will go to one of those places. So he talks about how, how your life choices are really narrowed down because you're choosing things from a list rather than choosing things from... Not the list, like the yeah. life. By true random. Yeah. yeah. So hijack number one, if you control the menu, you control the choices, is what he's saying. So whoever designs these apps is controlling what the menu is and the choices that you make are yeah. narrowed down to what it is allowing you to do. Um, so, I mean, read the article. It's really, really good. So what's the answer for you, Katie? Do you need to... <laughs> I've tried loads of things. I've got this real addiction that's so mm. frustrating. Have you tried I've duct deleted... taping your thumb to the side of your hand? Yeah, I should do. <laughs> I've deleted all the apps. Yeah, all... <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I've deleted all the apps, and then I hid them all in a folder, <laughs> and then I just click where time is to get to that folder. Oh, wow. Like some kind of weirdo <laughs> addict. I don't think that's deleting. That's hiding. Yeah, yeah. not even very No, but I deleted it from the front one. Okay. I didn't really properly delete it. I th- I see, I find the problem with Facebook is not that it's full of people that I don't find interesting. It's like, you know, you, you can hide them and you just end up with this stream of <laughs> the best stuff from your smartest friends. And it, mm. it's, it's insidious for that reason. That's very true. But you're also limiting your choices. Mm. Um, I got addicted to the Preston buy swap sale. <laughs> oh, no. I never bought anything. I just looked at all this weird shit people were selling, like a sweaty sports top for five dollars. Someone <laughs> bought it, and I was like, I keep, I keep... described it that way. Pre-review <laughs> sweated. Because if you're gonna if you're gonna describe it that way, you imagine that's value adding that there's somebody out there that you're pitching it to. Oh, I'm describing it as being sweated. It, they said it was lightly worn, but she hadn't even ironed it. It's like. That. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so that spent like hours looking at the buy swap sell site. <laughs> Bless ya. Bless ya. Um, I'll, go, I'll jump in. I'll, well, okay, I'll quickly jump in on the next one. It's an, uh, the, the main premise I'm going to come to is an article on the uh, University of Arizona website. Uh, when was that? It was from a few years ago now. And the article was called Dead Forests Release Less Carbon Into the Atmosphere Than Expected. It's from March 2013. So the reason I had that article up, I went 
specifically Google searching it, Katie, um, on my phone, <laughs> addictively. <laughs> um, and the reason I had it was we had a, we got a bunch of magazines in the house and I was sort of doing some changes around the house and grabbed some magazines from some people to sort of get some ideas and fine-tune our own ideas and stuff. And I'm blown away by this greenwash thing. Like, so the way people are advertising themselves now, like McDonald's, let's give McDonald's a, a quick example. McDonald's now advertise themselves as being very un-McDonald's, hmm. okay? Because so after decades of reinventing themselves, introducing salad bars and Diet Coke or whatever, they've kind of gone, oh, people are getting over it. But these these magazines, they have this huge, like it, there's kit homes and there's products of all sorts, the latest products, there's lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of these products. And they're all boasting their green sustainable credentials. So, and there was this one particular company um, and they were boasting that its products made of timber prevented the carbon from dead trees from re-entering the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. I also noticed through this magazine that we no longer have decks and verandas to relax on. We have um, sustainable verandas and renewable decks. So it's just... But anyway, this, the point these people were trying to make in their promotion was that um, I think they did like timber-framed houses or log cabins or something like that, and they say, well, our products prevent carbon from a dead forest entering the atmosphere. And I thought, well, hey, is that a thing that we need to be desperately worried about? And so what I found was um, this thing about the massive tree die-offs that we're currently seeing in North America. Now, there's a pine beetle that throughout the cold, cold, cold climes of um, North America has often reduced so massively in number as to be inconsequential. Now, with um, increasing heat throughout the winter, it doesn't die off, so it doesn't go dormant, so there's huge swathes of tree die off. And so when people start to research this, their concern would be that the death of these trees would punch heaps more carbon dioxide out into the atmosphere. And seemingly these furniture people or log cabin people jumped on it. Their expectation was that when a tree dies on a large scale, it would lead to a big pulse of carbon into the atmosphere through microorganisms metabolising all of that dead wood. The question they were looking to answer is how does that carbon dioxide release from the forest into the atmosphere? How does the change take place when you have a large-scale tree mortality over time? And it was actually not the case. It was something they described as really just a dampening off, like nowhere near as bad as they thought. And basically when these forests areas die it is a tragedy within itself but even though they're now taking down far less carbon dioxide through photosynthesis they're also not releasing it throughout the night as respiration and a lot of the carbon that gets drawn down by a tree in its life cycle goes down into the soil and these microbes are constantly metabolizing that and so where the study expected to find a huge pulse of carbon dioxide released in dead forests kind of was so so Right. So I just thought that was. But I, th- I, I think you're being un- unfair here. Like, we we got to draw some carbon out of the atmosphere somehow. Now yeah. we've talked a bit on the show about getting it into soil. Yep. But it's true that when you build things out of timber, if they're not rotting, then that's. I, I don't know how significant it is on the global scale, but that is yeah. carbon sequestration. It is. I'm not arguing that. I just sort of thought. Why is that the why is that now? I mean this company seems to have been in business for years and years and years. Why is everyone jumping on this stuff now and overstating facts? Mm. You know, like it's it's great to try and be well, an maybe ethical Maybe it's good in a in a way because people are responding to it now and they haven't mm. for so long. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just feeling a bit cynical lately. <laughs> yeah, her rump of seeing that. <laughs> maybe you could go and varnish all of the dead trees so they didn't ever rot. Yeah, yeah, with orangutan oil. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Varnish the trees movement. (laughs) (laughs) 
well because I'm not very Positive good at ni- action. I'm not good at knitting, so I can't knit bomb the trees. <laughs> but yeah, but it was interesting. The, the, you know, the, na- the study of natural carbon cycles. It said here actually, um, and this was an interesting thing. Uh, the l- 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 the large areas of high elevation forests are some of the most important carbon sinks for Western North America. Worldwide, plants take about 120 billion tons of carbon out of the atmosphere each year, and about half of that is released again through plant respiration, while the other half is released through as- respiration by animals, microbes, and other organisms. According to data published by the IPCC, burning of fossil fuels and land use change result in an annual net addition of about 8 billion tonnes, which actually sort of next to that 120 billion tonnes wasn't as much as I thought, but is still a shitload. Mm. Hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm probably all cynical. I've been a bit moody lately. I'm very sorry. I'm just going to put my chin on my fist and mm. sit in this disappointed-looking yeah. way. The black cloud is sort of misting up the studio, mate. Mm. Uh, well, on, on happier news... Cheer me up. I guess, sort of. Like I was listening to... It's actually not a new topic for, for this uh, segment of our show, but I was watching, uh, listening to something on Radio National yesterday uh, called... Rewild the Child, and it's one of those ones talking about how much better kids do when they get to spend a lot of time in nature. And they brought up the Swedish kindergartens where kids climb the trees and, you know, five, six metres up in the air and all that kind of stuff. And they're interviewing George Mombio, the Guardian columnist. He's got a new book out called How Did We Get Into This Mess? Politics, Equality and Nature. And... uh, um, specialist from Australia, Rachel Sharman, who's a childhood development specialist, and they're both sort of saying the same kind of things along those lines. But one thing that stuck out to me was that homework makes school performance worse. Yeah. Homework makes academic performance worse than if the kids got to play outside. And it just struck me as one of those, like... You know, we had uh, the guy from the Australia Institute mm. on last year, Matt work hours, And he was talking about the same thing as it applies to workers. Yeah. That if you force people to do overtime... Totally. The amount of overall productivity goes down. Yeah. So you do more work in 35 hours than you do in 60. Mm. If, you, if you have to do that 60 week after week, week after week, yep. until you... It's one out. of the worst things doing regular habitual overtime. Yeah, it's just a silly habit. But we're, so we're destroying people's lives, and in the, and this is the parallel. We're we're making kids' lives worse and mm. driving kids to ADHD, and and then getting them on drugs, and then they're the problem kid, and the rest of their life they've got that as their association with who they are, and they're not. And we could be giving them a happier life, and they'd be doing better academically and it's just you know okay this is another depressing thing i said it to you up but it's such yeah. low-hanging fruit because it works for everybody it works for mm. yeah the teachers don't have to mark it the works homework. for teachers yeah exactly the parents don't have to pretend that they know standard grade maths <laughs> <laughs> exactly. i don't have a lot of value in pretending i know about that <laughs> no well this is a battle that we have because our, our little fella is in grade one at the local school and he brings home these readers and you've, he's got to read them to us and we've got to tick it off and he's got to review it and i go through his reader and so many of his reviews he draws a frowny face and says boring <laughs> you know because last term i think they were doing transport and he couldn't give a shit about yeah. transport and so we pull him away from his simpson and day bird id book which he loves mm. which is actually now starting to look like a yellow page that someone dropped in your driveway two years ago and you've run over it six times 
and make, make him read these books that he just sits and goes, ah. Oh. And so, yeah, it's giving him a really foul taste in his mouth. Mm. Yeah, and it's just prepping you for a boring job. Mm. Isn't it? It is. Mm. Mm. So you can just be part of the cog, the machine, and be bored for the rest of your life. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, this has cheered me up, strangely. It's <laughs> <so> quite counterintuitive. <laughs> mm. But it does highlight the need for decent open spaces, public open spaces. Yep. Yes. One of the facts they had in this interview was the fact that the incidences of ADHD with children can be mapped according to how close you live to a park. Oh, I'm going to have to read that. Mm. I would listen to it. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to Copenhagen in a few weeks. They've got um, these amazing play yards where you can just go wild in dangerous situations. Adults too? Totally. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You are on Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R FM and tonight... We have a returning guest from one of our, some, was it Summerfield show back when? Yeah, way back. Yeah. Way back. back we, did, we haven't got that much more professional, sadly. No. <laughs> uh, so you won't notice any change, Theo. Uh, we have community organiser, Theo Kitchener. Theo is the founder of several groups m- more recently than, I think we may have been talking to you about the Sharehood last time, I can't remember, but uh, Doing It Ourselves, which is a group which aims to both broaden our understanding of things like resource depletion, climate change and the debt crisis while at the same time encouraging action for the sake of personal preparedness, happiness and ethical living. And she's also the founder of Livelihood, which is a network of mutually supporting cooperatives uh, for people working and playing together. So welcome to Greening the Apocalypse, Theo Kitchener. Thank you. Uh, now, I, I don't know if this is a good angle, but like we probably have a similar kind of heritage emotionally, philosophically, politically, a, a little bit insofar as uh, we, we both got a bit scared at some point. Yep. May have been involved in, uh, you know, interested in political stuff. And then at some point, our vision of the future was shaken up by things like peak oil, uh, global financial bubbles and we were talking about these kind of things to our friends they thought we were a bit crazy um, but we started doing things to make our lives more resilient and robust and that involved not going with a shotgun and cans of beans preparing for the apocalypse out in the country somewhere but to try and be more positive about it and do community organising get into growing things so I, I was thought it might be an interesting opener to talk about uh, what are you afraid of and do you think that's, that fear is a good motivator? Maybe, mm. maybe we could just do the latter. Maybe we, we, we had Steve Keen on last week and he talked about economic crises and things. Do you think, let's just say, do you well, feel, feel like fear has well, got you where you are today? I kind of want to say something to the first bit as well. Is, um, mm. I'm not as scared of financial collapse as I used to be. Mm. Uh, I think I'm much more scared now of authoritarianism. Mm. Um, I think that is probably what would happen if we do see a financial collapse. Um, I think in the past, uh, in a way, I was actually excited by the the opportunity that would come with financial collapse. But I think, you know, having done some thought experiments with some other people from doing it ourselves, uh, yeah, if I was in the government's position, I would use a financial collapse to switch to authoritarianism rather than mm. let that happen and let all of the, you know, potentials for transition and so on play themselves out. 
Can you just paint a picture of what would happen with authoritarianism? Sure. I mean, I think I think we're kind of on track towards it already. Um, you know, an increase in surveillance and um, anti-protest laws and all of those kinds of things. Um, but there's also, I guess, uh, I guess you know, say say there's a a big systemic banking crisis. I can imagine the government just sort of coming out and saying, "Look, everybody, if we don't switch to a planned economy right now, uh, everything's going to go to shit." So just trust us and everything will be fine. Mm. Um, and I can imagine people would go with that because mm. everything really would go to shit. Mm. You know, we've had David Holmgren on the show and he's the uh, co-originator of Permaculture and he's got the book Future Scenarios. And he, he says that in Australia, because we will suffer from climate change fairly drastically, but we're actually an energy superpower with uranium and coal. Mm. There's going to be enough pure energy there for big corporate and big government to continue to exist. And that could lead us to a reactionary type world where it's like, okay, the sea level rises, let's build a wall because we can do that. We're running out of water, desalination plant. And and that could lead, he, he says just the particular conditions of Australia could could lead us a little bit along those lines of exactly what you're saying more more authoritarian and people in a desperate position and willing to accept that totally and yeah yeah, nicole foss talks as well about you know all of the different kinds of top-down solutions to climate change and how scary they all are Mm. you know so it's stuff like that building a wall adaptation stuff stuff like geoengineering um stuff like green authoritarianism like Mm. it's just yeah and you know also even the the building of renewables but done by corporations to their benefit more than everybody else's like there's so many ways in which you can build renewables that aren't actually environmentally friendly Mm. that's what's happening though isn't it right now well yeah sort of i mean we're we're on track but do we just creep 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 and then before long it's like actually we're that's what's happened yeah that seems to be the track we're on (laughs) um and that's what i find most scary yep well well, one, one thing that would lend itself to giving in to authoritarianism is when you don't have any sense of control over your own life, any ability to do things with your hands, to work with local communities. Now, they seem like that's a, a lot of people would accuse people into permaculture and things of being apolitical. But if you are kind of locked into a system where you're dependent on the supermarket and institutions to do everything for you, then you really have no uh, resilient fallback to... to you, you're just going to have to go along with everything. So let's... Anyway, let's talk about the positives. You Is, is it partly because of this fear of authoritarian that you're doing these things which, which are actually seem like they're fantastic in and of their own right? Yeah, totally. I think, um, so like livelihood, for example, is, um, yeah, it's all about building an alternative economy that, you know, is joyful, is sustainable and resilient, is um, really accessible to any any kind of person to get involved in, is, um, you know, egalitarian and fair. Um, And, yeah, where people are learning skills constantly and we're having fun meeting our own needs. so yeah with with projects like that it's it's all about proving to people there is an alternative mm-hmm. um at the same time as yeah giving people something that they can depend on that means that they're much less likely to go down those paths 
I was just going to say, when, when all these, we just talked about the, the, the top of the interview there, Adam, uh, the fear thing, it, I started to become aware of all these different things years and years ago, but I had no realisation that anyone else was going through that sentiment and I felt incredibly alone. So uh, one of the great things you're doing here is, uh, and I love it the most, is the community building, like first and foremost. Because mm-hmm. you talked about the, the, the AK-47 and the beans in a, in a shipping container in the desert or whatever. Um, that's inherently flawed because sooner or later you run out of beans, you smell bad in the meantime, <laughs> and we're a social creature. So you're, you're building social bonds and community bonds because one person is only so capable of so many things. Is that is that what you're achieving? Yeah, that's that's the hope. I think um, you know an example of it is the Gnomes Farming Cooperative, which is part of Livelihood, and the idea there is that you know gardening is actually quite time consuming and difficult, and you need a lot of skills um, to really be able to do it well. And so what we're doing is matching up people who own land. You know, mainly just backyards and front yards and nature strips and stuff like that, and um, and people who want to learn to garden, and then getting together and sharing the produce, sharing skills, having more fun doing it together. Mm. Because yeah, we can't do this stuff on our own. Somebody holed up in the middle of nowhere, mm. trying to grow all their own food with just one person or even a family not is possible. it's really not possible to produce everything you mm. need. And that's yeah, that's part of where livelihood comes in as well is. We want to do things like the gnomes where we grow food, but we also want to do shared childcare and building things and fixing things and crafting things and communal cooking and all that sort of stuff is way more sustainable if you do it mm. in large groups yep. um, and, and just way more enjoyable and way more doable. The conversations are fun as well. I've got a good friend and she's incredibly good at sewing and 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 material work and that sort of stuff she's also a jeweler um and very nifty with details and yet she sort of goes oh my compost tape's crap and i've got all this gardening and shit to do and i'm sitting there going i've got a pile of clothes that all need the knees fixed or the elbow or whatever Mm. and so that that's just one bond but as soon as we started that conversation we started to sort of expand a bit in that chat about other people that could help out with all these other things Mm. and before you know it 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 is a, a waterfall of inspiration isn't it and you know, and then the serotonin levels kick in and it's ah, yeah. yeah yeah it's really exciting so <clears throat> after you i was just thinking like what oh, we often come up with in my work when we're doing projects with communities we have to come up with strategies and ideas about building community resilience through doing community organizing stuff and we often leave it up to the council to to organise it and get things started. And I'm thinking now, is that authoritarianism? Oh my God, are we doing it all wrong? And then if the, if the council do organise it, is that a good thing or should just people be doing it? Um, and if people can't be bothered doing it, who organises the people? So interesting. Um, <laughs> it's not entirely authoritarianism. No. It's a photo op for your mayor, really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah, for me, like, if, if the council want to do great stuff, that's really exciting. Mm. Um, but the thing for me is that the council often doesn't do great stuff. Um, you know, we have to push them or whatever. And if, yeah, I guess the way I see it, it's better off if we just do stuff without the council, personally, just because I feel like we get stuck in these loops of applying for grants and all of those mm. sorts of things. Yeah. That, you know, make us dependent on the system as well as, you know, um, making what we do not necessarily easily replicable. 
Yeah. Um. So finding the community people who are up for actually spending time creating these groups and doing the things, mm. how do you find them and how do you keep them motivated? Um, I run workshops and do talks. I come on the radio, those sorts of things, and, yeah, put out my contact details. And there's there's so many people out there who are keen to do this sort of stuff. Um yeah in terms of keeping motivated i think it's about not burning yourself out not being part of groups that have burnout cultures um you know like being excited about what you're doing like just to go back to that fear question um (coughs) what i've since realized since starting doing it ourselves is that fear works on some small minority of people but it doesn't work on everybody and i think what is much more likely to work on people is hope and desire you know like and, and that's actually what got me into politics in the first place. Before I got into all the collapse stuff, it was very much just, you know, being at a, a folk festival down at the, the creek with everybody naked, swimming, playing music, just being playful. Mm. And, like, I was just sitting there and I was just like, holy shit, this is what the world is supposed to be like. Yet. Like, what the hell? <laughs> you know? <laughs> What's going on out there? <laughs> like... <laughs> Yeah, and and that's been, for me, really the driving force behind everything has been, like, I want to live in a beautiful world. Mm. That is a perfect motivator. And you are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3RRR. You are on Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R and someone who very much walks the name of this show. Thea Kitchener is our guest tonight. You are a community organiser. We've talked to you a little bit about livelihood and the Gnomes Cooperative (coughs) as part of that, uh, making over people's yards, matching up people that have a bit of land with people that want a garden. But you've also got the Doing It Ourselves project you want to tell us a little bit more about that yeah sure so um so one thing is we've we've changed doing it ourselves from talking a lot about collapse sort of stuff peak oil and financial crisis um and now we're talking much more just about you know is this really the world that we want to live in mm. um and what is the world that we want to live in and actually we could do that we could build a movement for systemic change systemic change sorry um you know like there is an alternative um, and I think that's that's something that really holds people back is this idea that there is no alternative, that whole Margaret Thatcher mm. thing. Um, in, a, in a way, that's like one of the things that thinking about collapse and fear of the future gave to me. It, well, it's scary, but it's, there is no inevitability. Mm. That's, that's out the window. Because yeah. the, the, the systems that are dependent on massive amounts of fossil fuel energy, like they just can't exist into the future forever. And that creates a hole for you know at the worst end like you talked about authoritarianism but at the better end if there's a lot of seeds that you can sow right now which if you Mm. end up with working models of things where here's some shiny happy people doing things with a lot less energy uh down the track you you know you're ahead of the curve literally the bell curve of energy depletion uh and people are going to come 
come to take a look and and that has an amplifying effect yeah and totally. this is very much what you're doing yeah yeah partially because i mean that that's one way of looking at it and the other way of looking at it is just you know we need to change the system mm-hmm. because of climate change and we need to change the system because of poverty and oppression and general unhappiness mm-hmm. like almost everyone i know is nowhere near as happy as they ought to be um for instance but like the yeah i guess um you know the collapse stuff is like that is a great motivator um but i think we need to change the world before it happens yeah um, so what are you doing to change it what are these shiny happy people doing what where is the fun apart <laughs> <laughs> from the naked creeks because i tell everyone when we <laughs> close the show each year i go and i say have all the fun and i, I guess to give any kind of reference to that statement and we talk about this a lot when you just step out of that day-to-day grind and go no fuck i'm not going to do that now i'm going to go and um do my worm farms and 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 make sure all my chickens are are healthy and 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 fix all this stuff and turn an old aluminium ladder into a bike trailer and yeah, yeah yeah all of those things are exceptionally good fun and people get involved and they ask questions and it creates conversations and that's why i say each week when i close the show have all the fun Mm. because it does make you shiny and happy in a way that gridlock and paying all your bills and stuff and sitting down and doing your book it doesn't make you happy Mm. so yeah yeah i think think particularly working full-time really makes people unhappy yes um Mm -hmm. and um yeah i guess i guess what we want to do with livelihood like one of the things i haven't mentioned so far is we want to get a warehouse um and set up a real sort of intentional community there maybe a hundred people where we can do communal food twice a day and um you know work on all our different projects and do our shared childcare and so on Presumably not all living in the warehouse. No, because this is the thing is... (laughs) Living space in Melbourne is horribly expensive. So, you know, we're planning to just set up, you know, some communal share houses and things like that nearby, but Mm -hmm. mainly just let people do whatever they want for their own housing. Mm -hmm. Um, But have this space where, you know, we can have a real community. Um, And in the evening times, you know, we can have open mic nights or we can do sing-alongs. We've been doing utopian sing-alongs, by the way. That's been heaps of fun. Sweet. But, yeah, different sorts of, you know, fun things in the evenings and, you know, have heaps of time for yoga and lots of different workshops and all that sort of stuff. Um, But, yeah, I guess, um, I mean, the other place where the fun is is just, you know, working part-time or not at all if you can and um, putting your your heart and your soul into these kinds of projects and, and like what she was talking about, you know, doing all this fun stuff and doing it with people you know i've found i don't actually enjoy gardening i enjoy gardening with people Mm. and getting the food out of it it's a really weird thing to admit but yeah Mm. um so but i think yeah community is really what it's all about um do you have a quiet thrill every time you see worms? I have this. <laughs> that sounds weird, but no. So I've got, I've got these big worm farms, and when I lift the lid on them, and I go and collect some scraps from a restaurant, and my friend, you know, and I talk about all this stuff, and I lift the lid to feed them more, you know, cabbage leaves and that sort of stuff, and there's all these big worms gorging themselves on news, shredded newspaper and all this sort of stuff they're throwing there, and all these little tiny baby white worms go, and that like gives me mm-hmm. an immense buzz, like that I'm. You know, this giant godlike presence to these worms because I'm not a godlike presence to anyone else. You think you're the worm god? Is that I'll, what you're saying? Yeah, I'll go with that. Yeah, I, yeah. I reckon what that is, though, is. Um, it's I mean, ego. It's complete. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it's self efficacy. 
Um, mm. It's knowing that you can do something and do it well, mm. and it's doing something meaningful. And that's what's missing from most of our jobs, yep. in particular, the, the meaningful bit. Yep. Um, and, and that's just crazy. Like, what happened to our society that we're all spending so much of our time doing things that aren't even meaningful? Mm. Like, yeah, when I talk about there is an alternative... Um, what I want to talk about in particular, because I think there's been a big smear campaign against it, basically, is anarchism, mm. you know, because anarchism is not about chaos and violence and so on. It's about people getting together and organising their own way to meet their own needs, mm. um, in, you know, in a non-hierarchical way. And the exciting thing about that is you don't need bosses, you don't need prisons, you don't need police, you don't need to pay rent, you don't need to pay profit or interest. You don't need real estate companies. You don't need finance industry or advertising industry. Like, without, without all of that shit, you know, we could work a quarter as much as we do now. Mm. Like, so, so when you use anarchism, you're, uh, I'm sure this has something to do with the fact that livelihoods is based on a cooperative model. And I think cooperatives, there's... Is it something like most people in Australia are involved in one, whether they know it or not, like the RSEV? Yeah. But there are parts of Basque Country in Spain where mm-hmm. it's like a th- third of the whole economy is in cooperatives. So we're not talking about something, this pure idealism, utopian thing. Like these are hmm. models that have been tried and tested yeah. that, that you, you're picking up and using as part of livelihoods. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, there's so many examples of this sort of stuff working well, like from the social centres in Exarchia to the yeah the cooperatives in, in the Basque region of Spain and then Italy and, um, you know, the, the squatted villages in France and Greece. And, like, there's, yeah, so many examples. And, and big examples of it happening on, you know, citywide um, situations as well. There was the general strike in Seattle... Um, in Korea, in China, in Spain, um, it's happening right now in Rojava, uh, on the in, in Syria. Yeah, it's really interesting, um, but it's entirely possible to organise uh, entire cities or states in a in a bottom up kind of way. Mm-hmm. Could do with a bit of rebranding, though. Anarchism. I know. Yeah, yeah. it's frustrating. I, I think that's part of what doing it ourselves is setting out to do. Really, call it hugginism. <laughs> I reckon embrace hugginism. <laughs> no, Let's you workshop call it that. Worm god. Worm god. Yeah. Worm godism. Worm godism. <laughs> But now it's interesting. I mean, you talk about the smear campaign. This is that's the, the go back to that authoritarian thing you were talking about before. And you know, day to day mainstream media um, doesn't even necessarily need to smear a thing. It mm-hmm. just needs to completely ignore it and completely tuck it away and pop up a, a ad for you know long life paint mm-hmm. or something in its place mm-hmm. or you know here's how to get your super working for you or whatever. Um, that's but that is in itself an authoritarian and a um, massive uh, propaganda machine that we're we're fighting against and so that day-to-day activity bottom-up activity and and being there and being on the ground where that's shut out and it's face-to-face conversations and true interactions that's where the strength in those movements lies i think yeah totally I, i think even beyond trying to find like more meaningful things to do in with communities or building things with your hands like i think that's good but there's just this kind of weird inevitability to 
to to life. And and to some extent, I was I was stuck in that until I got some fear kicked into me, and that forced me off the tracks. And I have to say that just that process in itself, even though there is a period of like, oh, this is a bit more difficult. Uh, I, and I've had periods where it's like, oh, you know, like those people that just everything makes sense and is simple and is laid out. That uh, I've been jealous of that. But ultimately, it's it's just so rewarding to, to have... I, I, I was reading Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut uh, recently and there's a line in it, peculiar travel suggestions are like dancing lessons from God. And it makes me think of that, but it's, it's not about just going off the beaten path when you're traveling, but it's about life. And uh, I, th- I think, yeah, if you're listening and you think this stuff about collapse is like, well, you know, technology will save us. Um, capitalism is completely capable of changing and reacting and fixing everything and all, the, all these things which I sort of internalised but have had to reconsider. But whether you believe, whether you, you know, think we're sounding a bit kooky or whatever, but it's worth believing just for the sake of getting off the tracks, I reckon. It's mm. been good for me. Would you say it's been good for you? Yeah, yeah, totally. I think, um, yeah, I became way happier when yeah. I when I got into all this community stuff yeah. um, and, and the activism stuff as well because, yeah, it gave me meaning and it gave me... Um, uh, yeah, reasons to care mm. about everything, and it it meant that I stopped working and I, like, you know, for money, and I, um, and mostly anyway, and and just kind of got to choose what I wanted to do with my life, and mm. got to choose who I wanted to work with and what on, and like, yeah, m- my life is really. Uh, it's not hoarded <laughs> at all. Um, it's it's kind of crazy and all over the place, but it's so lovely. You know, I can I can hang out with whatever friends, worm gods, whenever I feel like it, and I'm not restricted to a. Mm. I guess you'd need schedule. to find friends who weren't working to yeah. hang out with them. <laughs> yes, this is true. Otherwise, you'd just be lonely on your own in the house with a small baby just thinking, <laughs> yeah, not sure. sure what to do now. I guess the thing is, like, yeah. The thing is, as well, is I tend to find the other people who aren't working the most interesting. Yeah. Um, so that that helps. And there's a lot of us, um, you know, living different lives. Um, it's about finding us. Uh, and 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 finding ways to make it accessible for you as well. You know, when you do have kids and things like that, it's definitely harder. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, particularly mm. to to be able to support your kids and still live a very alternative lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So you're um, talking about living much more frugally, taking care of your own needs a lot more, mm-hmm. so you can work yeah, less. Totally. I've got a book coming out about that. Nice, <laughs> nice. There's, I think the other aspect months. is it's, it's not necessarily the, the the number of hours you're clocking out because I still do. Like with my monetary and non-monetary work, a fair few hours, but each mm. one of them feels good. Yeah, that's me too. The, I think that uh, the you said satisfaction before I think, and mm. and that is the ultimate difference I think from where I might have been a couple of years ago to where I am now. That I look forward to meeting the people who are, whose yards I'm working in or who I'm setting something up with, no matter what it is. And sometimes it's on a Sunday afternoon, and sometimes it's late on a weeknight or whatever, but it still feels good. And sometimes yeah. it equals some cash, and sometimes it equals some cake. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. 
Yeah, keep the community in your radio because um, otherwise I've got nothing to do on a Tuesday night. <laughs> we, we're doing the wrap-up here on Greeting the Apocalypse. Theo, you've got heaps coming up. What's going on? Well, um, so Gnomes Farming Cooperative is doing a call-out at the moment for land and for people who want to garden, any suburb. Um, but in particular, we're looking for land in Footscray, people in Hurstbridge, um, but, yeah, any anything, anywhere. Um, you can find the call-out form to fill in on our website. It's livelihood.community, www.livelihood.community. And uh, if you're keen to get involved with doing it ourselves, we're planning on doing lots of workshops, lots of postering, zines or pamphlets. We're going to be doing our own radio show on 3CR, talking to people on the street, maybe doing some animations and film stuff, promoting alternatives and encouraging re- resistance. My email, if anybody's keen to get in contact, get involved with any of the projects, is theo at doingitourselves.org. Awesome. Thank you, Theo, for catching up with us tonight. We should make this a regular thing. Uh, yeah, that'd be awesome. Uh, Jed, thanks for hitting the <coughs> buttons in the correct sequence. We love you, Adam Grubb. Katie, what's coming up next week? Next week we have James Larmer Reed, um, my boss and planner and president of the Victorian chapter of the Planning Institute to talk urban planning. Awesomeness. <laughs> We're going to see you next Tuesday, but until then, have, have all, all the fun. The fun. <laughs> This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.